Uh, if you're not a, here a regular at Fellowship, then these candles here at the front, I want to give you some context here. Um, we celebrate a season called Advent around this time of year every year, and uh, Advent means simply arrival, and it means the arrival of something long anticipated specifically. And so Advent finds its place around the Christmas season because we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus, but also that Jesus will one day Advent again. Uh, these, are, these candles are symbolic of the past, but also hopeful for the future. And so we light one each Sunday anticipating Christmas, which is why the Christmas Eve candle is the pink one that gets a, a little bit bright. Or I should say the, 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 last, the fourth Sunday before Christmas is the pink one. We had to light the pink one and the middle one together because the middle one is Christmas Eve. And so uh, here we are. We're celebrating the arrival uh, of the long-anticipated Jesus. So... Um, I'm excited to, to look with you guys at a classic passage that is a Christmas passage. You know, when I was uh, a little younger as a pastor, I, I felt like I wanted to spice things up, and so I'd go to a really obscure passage on Christmas. But today, we're just going to be really boring and go to the most exciting passage maybe in your Bible, which is the arrival of Jesus. So let's look at Luke 2 together today as we talk about good news of great joy. And that's what good news does, right? When we receive really, really, really good news you don't have to think, you know what, I should be happy right now. You don't have to think that because when you receive good news, your natural instinct is just, it's like a pop. It's like, wow, this is awesome. I, am, I have this joy in my heart. And that's what good news automatically does. We don't even have to think about it. I got a video that I want to show you that I think is true of that exact thing, that good news automatically brings great joy. Can you roll it? For me, it's, it's Elf. And the two Home Alone movies, and those are different from every other movie. It's just those three, they just reside with me special. Um, that's what happens, right? And you see the, the joy on Buddy the Elf's face when that news comes in, that he likes that news. He doesn't have to think about it. He just explodes. Santa! Even though smiling is his favorite, you know, you do see a noticeable boost of his joy when he hears the news. Guys, the joy of Christmas isn't just the holiday spirit, you know. Uh, that's not really where the joy comes from. It doesn't come just from the holiday spirit. The joy is a response to the good news that is the Christmas story. Born that man no more may die. That news that we just sang. Jesus' arrival means that death is on its way out the door. And that response is great joy. A Savior is born, which is what we're going to see in our passage. His life meant the end of death. That's why he said later on in his life in John eleven twenty five 25 to Martha, who was grieving, by the way, because she was burying her brother Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Guys, that is the good news. That's the good news. That means great joy for us this morning. Christmas is about the greatest gift ever given, but if we only recognize the gift, we fall short. We must not just recognize, but respond in faith to that coming gift, a response of joy. So let's look at Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 14 this morning as we find this together. Adam, would you mind turning on that fan, on that thing? I think it's off. Thank you, bro. Luke 2, 8 through 14, it says this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's Christmas Eve, and that would be news to you, I don't think. I woke up this morning and walked in the living room, and I was met by Zion, who said, it's Christmas Eve. So I know, one more day, you know, one more day, here we go. We got one more day. I remember when I was young, uh, not being able to fall asleep quickly because of the anticipation of the gifts that kept me awake. Anybody else like that? It's like you were so amped about the next morning, you're like, I'm not going to be able to sleep. And so I would not be able to sleep. I would toss and turn as a child. I remember that. Now it's different. I have a hard time staying awake to do all that needs to be done on Christmas Eve. But that's what anticipation does, anticipation and waiting. The longer we wait for something, the more eagerly we anticipate something. If you have something on your calendar, whether it's a vacation or whatever it may be, the longer you wait, the closer it gets, the more perhaps excited you become and ready for it to be here that you are. That is the story of Advent. That's the story of Jesus' arrival. The longer the time dragged out, the longer the silence, the longer the darkness, the more God's people yearned and longed for that anticipating arrival of Jesus. And it was a long time of silence. In fact, if you were to look at the very end of the Old Testament, chronologically, there's about 400 years where everything goes dark. They don't hear from God. They don't have a prophet. They don't see some big movement of the Spirit among them. 400 years of silence. And then, to use the word that Luke uses here, Suddenly, not to rulers, not to the wealthy, not to the important, but to lowly shepherds, God speaks. 400 years of darkness, and then boom, the glory of the Lord. Through a messenger, or more on the nose with this series that we've been walking through, through a herald, an angel. A herald is someone that says, get ready, something's about to happen. It's always seen that song, hark, it means listen. The herald angels sing. They're singing that something is about to happen. Verses 8 and 9 say this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. This is the region where this birth is going down. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The herald angel, right? And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. You know, it's easy to, we've probably read those words a million times. Maybe some of us, maybe not. But it's easy to just kind of just read over them and not think about what you've just read. But I want to paint a picture here for a second. It's dark, it's night, these guys are out working. By the way, for them, it's just a regular work night, or so they thought. They're just out there doing their thing. It's just a regular, boring work night. And then something supernatural occurs. The word says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Again, what does that really mean? What does this look like? Well, often in the Old Testament, when you see that phrase, the glory of the Lord shone around them, or the glory of the Lord, what we see is like bright light. God even sometimes manifests in fire or a cloud of smoke. We've talked about images of God's messengers, angels described by the prophets, having maybe human-like features or just having a bunch of eyes all over them or wings or wheels, which you read about in Ezekiel, or the four heads with eagle's face and an oxen face and lion and man. And so what did this look like? I don't know. Crazy is probably what it looked like, enough to scare the pants off of these guys. Not really sure, but it defied logic, and it caused the shepherds to become fearful. I think it kind of looked something like this image. Be not afraid. Sir, this is the scariest moment of my life. That's kind of what I picture, maybe with different clothes on the shepherds, but something along those lines. That image just cracks me up because 
Um, I don't know. I'm like deadpan humor, and that really made me laugh. I wanted to share that with you. Thank you. The Greek phrase where it says that they were afraid, it says literally it means they were frightened with massive fear. Frightened with massive fear. They aren't merely unnerved. They're not merely startled. They are struck with terror. But it's in the middle of that terror when they see this thing that they can't even wrap their minds around that the angels quickly assured them that terror should be replaced by something else. Joy. Not to be fearful, but to be glad. Joy. Why? Because they're heralding something, or maybe we should say they're heralding someone. Why is joy the response? Because church, in Jesus, God was finally breaking the silence. He was lighting up the darkness of this world with his glory among men. It was heaven's divine intervention into man's eternal problem. This holy night was not one of fear. It was one of joy. And so today, as we talk about the good news of great joy I'm going to leave you with a couple of things that we can observe in our passage. And maybe we'll take away something we've never considered before. And maybe not. Maybe we just need a reminder. But the first thing is that this gift is a thoughtful gift. It's God's thoughtful gift. God's thoughtful gift. Do we have that? The first thing? There we go. God's thoughtful gift. That's the kind of gifts we like, right? The ones we try to give and then we all of a sudden it's Christmas Eve and you're like, it's a little too late to be thoughtful at this point. I just got to get a gift. You know, we have a tendency to breeze through these words that we read in this passage because we've maybe read them several times or heard them several times. But I want you to look very closely with me at this passage this morning. Verse 10 says, And the angel said to him, Fear not. Said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Really hang on those words. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news, great joy, all people. Guys, the Bible wasn't written in English. This is first written in Greek. And so I want you to to understand something really interesting, to me at least. When it says, I bring you good news, in my translation, that's one, two, three, four, five words. In the Greek, that's one word. It's just one New Testament Greek word. It's the word that we would take the word gospel from. So what he's really saying is, I gospel you. Like a verb form of gospel. You, What I'm doing tonight is I'm giving you gospel. Isn't that awesome? One little word with big implications. I gospel you. And it's rooted in, he says, good news, I gospel you of great joy. Also one Greek word to say, it's amazing. This, this gospel, this good news, this gospel I'm bringing to you is the most joyful of news that I could give you. So what is it? What is the source of joy? It's the very next words. He says, for, because, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's a strong claim. Strong claim. They've been longing for that claim for a very, very long time. And here an angel is giving them the gospel. A Savior is born. You know, just like your gifts, if you have given a thoughtful gift Usually you've given it for a reason. That's the most thoughtful gifts when they meet a need or you give it to someone and they say, this is exactly what I needed. This is so thoughtful. You knew the need and so you gave to that need. Guys, you only give a Savior for one reason and that's if somebody needs saving. Why does God give a Savior? Because he sees the need. I try really hard to give thoughtful gifts, but to be honest with you, I'm really bad at it because I don't think I'm a very thoughtful person. How's that for a confession? Merry Christmas. 
but I try. You know, I'm, I'm thoughtful for myself. Does that count? No. I, I, um, I do a lot of research before I buy anything for myself. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get better at doing that for others as well. I try to research and really give to a need, but you have to listen and know people well to do that, and I'm working on that part too. Just, man, this is just honest confession time. Look, but especially for like clothes, I do a lot of research. I've talked to you about my perfect pants before. I'm not going to revisit that subject. I'm wearing them right now. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> I do a lot of research before I buy, especially clothes. I want to get the perfect fabric and materials. The amount of belt loops is important to me. The quality of zipper, the pocket depth. You're like, what are you talking about? Okay. But look, man, I, I'll tell you something. I hope that my family doesn't watch this because I'm about to tell you what I'm going to get, what I've already gotten for the men in my family, my brothers and brother-in-law. Underwear. Got them underwear. Um, not as a cop-out. You think, that's a weak gift. No, 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 no. Thoughtful. Listen for just a moment. Guys would rather, and I know, maybe not the right, but listen, Brooke and I, by the way, she disagreed on whether or not I needed to share this with you, and she lost. So here we go. Um, Guys would rather buy cheap underwear and stretch them out and get holes in them and make uncomfortable adjustments all day. I'm not like that. And so I love my brothers and brother-in-law more than that. So I did some research, and I found the perfect underwear. <laughs> perfect fabric. It's a bamboo and rayon blend. It's smooth. <laughs> oh, Brooke's at home with the kids, and I just know what her face is doing right now. They're sick. Uh, the, it, the, the fabric is very smooth and stretchy, no bunching. I'm not going to go into the details. I kind of already have. My point is, thoughtful gift, because I know the guys, and I know that this is good. And Brooke told me, I can't believe that you got them underwear. And I said, this is a thoughtful gift. <laughs> we'll see what they think about it. Look, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, obviously, and I'm a total clown, and I realize that. But that's true, that the most thoughtful gifts meet a need, Right? Whether you're aware of the need or not, the most thoughtful gifts are given to meet a very specific and hopefully a great need in somebody's life. Guys, you can't miss the parallel here. That God gives a Savior because he knows your needs. He knows that your need is not money. Your greatest need is not shelter. He knows your greatest need is not a car, is not another job. Your greatest need is the gift that he gave to you need Jesus. We need Jesus. God is a thoughtful gift giver, and his gift met the perfect, the greatest need. Guys, the nature of the gift tells us the nature of the need. God sent a Savior because we need saving. When Romans 3.23 says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that communicates a need. We got a problem. When Romans 6.23 says the wages of that sin is death, that tells us that we got a problem. we got a need. You know what wages are when you work? You're doing an action. The wages are what you receive as a result of an action. That's a positive wage. There are negative wages. And that is that when we do a work that contradicts God's character, that goes against the grain of him and dishonors him and disobeys him and sins against him, we get payment for that. We receive a wage for that. But it is not something that is in our favor. It is something in our, against us. And that is the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift of God 
is eternal life. We are eternally separated from God. We need a Savior, and not just any Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. It wasn't stamped on his mailbox. Christ is his title. It's who he is in his very essence. The Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah, which is the Old Testament way of saying he is the anointed one. The one that God hand-selected and hand-picked and said, you're going to go and meet the greatest need. The one who would pay those wages, who would receive that death, who would take the punishment, bear the penalty, so that we could bear not the wrath of God, but the favor of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Guys, the Christmas season is about birth. But I would argue that the stable birth should cause us to look to a different birth, as to rebirth. The greatest gift that you could understand that God was reserved for you is through that birth, but it is the rebirth that only he could bring. Spiritual rebirth of all who would come to believe. That's why John 3, what a great passage. When Jesus is approached by this really, really smart guy named Nicodemus who knows it all, and this guy comes to Jesus who's just a a desert handyman, And he says, you seem to know more than me. He says, what must I do? What can man do to enter the kingdom of God? Think about the the gravity of that question. He's supposed to know everything. This guy's supposed to know nothing. He's just a, a desert handyman, an itinerant preacher who has a following. And Nicodemus goes to him at night and he's like, you seem to know. No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. You tell me, what, man, what must man do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says something very simple, yet so crazy, it had to have sounded nuts to Nicodemus. He says, man must be born again. What? Nicodemus' response is even indicative of that. He says, what? Because he says, am I gonna, I'm a full-grown man. Am I going to enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born again? He says, no, 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 no. You misunderstand. He said, you must be born of the Spirit. You've been born once in this decaying body with this sin-stained existence, the wages of that sin being death. You've got a problem. You need to be born again. Guys, isn't that true? That in our flesh, to live, one must be born. No one in this room has, has, exists unless you have been born. None of us, we've all been born in our flesh. That's Jesus' way of saying, in order to live eternal, one must also be born. You've been born once. I'm telling you, you need to be born again. And check this out, just as no one ever willed themselves into physical conception and birth, but someone else has brought them into this world, i.e. your parents, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you know what the Bible says in Ephesians 2? God made us alive. He made us alive because we couldn't do that. But God saw us who were dead and unable to bring life into ourselves. And he says, I'm going to make a way. A Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. What a story. That's why John 3, 16, same audience, right? Says that that we may not perish in the wages of those sins, right? But have eternal life. A Savior. And for us who believe, and Jesus is imploring that guy Nicodemus to do so in that passage. But for us who believe... It is good news that yields great joy. And guys, for you, the Christmas season, it may be those things. Like it may be happiness. You may be coming in here just on cloud nine and thinking, what a week. It has been great. And my life is happy. I got this heartwarming feeling. 
I'm excited, I'm relaxed, done all my Christmas shopping, I'm not grieving, I'm not hurting. God's been gracious in this season, and maybe that's you, and man, praise the Lord for that. But let's be real for a second. I would say there's a far greater likelihood that people in this room, that doesn't meet, that doesn't meet our description, or we don't meet that description. Instead, this season is full of stress. It may even be worse than just stress. It may be downright depressing. It may just be sad, lonely. You may have buried somebody this year in December. It may be discouraging. And it may be a little bit of a buffet, you know, of those things. But I'm here to tell you something, and I hope that this is comforting. And that's the, <clears throat> whether it is heartwarming or heart-wrenching, I'm here to tell you it can be joyful. The reason why is because great joy is not based on what you have or don't have in this life, but based on the good news and great Savior who grants you eternal life. Life is hard. God is speaking to people who would be severely persecuted for belonging to him. Great joy. God gives thoughtful gifts, and the coming of Christ met our greatest need. The second thing is that in this Christmas season, in Luke 2, God is speaking sign language, and I want us to be able to read God's sign language. Obviously, I'm kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek as well. We see signs. In fact, the angel uses the word sign, and signs are meant to communicate something. Symbols stand for things. Signs point to things. God is pointing to something. He's communicating something through this sign. A sign is simply proof of God at work. <clears throat> and it can point to different things, but overall, it means that God is at work. What the angel has done is he's appeared and said, the most important event in human history, to these shepherds, he says, hey guys, the most important event in human history has been revealed by Almighty God to you nobodies. That's exactly what just happened. And he's essentially saying, you want proof of that? Go that way. And you'll find a swaddled newborn baby in a barn laying in a feeding trough. That's a sign. You know why? Because that's weird. That's weird. And he means it to be weird. He's like, you want to know what the sign is? You go that way and just see if you find a baby in a place where, you know, wild or, or tamed animals would eat. You find that? You'll know that what I'm saying is the truth. 12 through 14 says this. He says, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's a feeding trough for animals. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I've never felt like a greater contrast of reading something and what it actually probably sounded like. There's no, I could have shouted this as loud as I can until my voice went out, and it would not have done justice to how the volume of verse 14 must have been in person. The Greek word used to describe the gathering of angels here, this chorus, <clears throat> is the same word from which we derive the English word plethora. A lot is what that means. Likely thousands of angels based on other instances of this phrasing in God's word. And they came proclaiming that this birth was for the glory of God 
That's why it says in the first part of verse 14, glory to God in the highest, but it's also for peace for men. Peace is being brought by God into the world. You know, we're kind of winding down uh, football season, and we're in bowl season, and, and if that's your thing, then, then great. It's kind of my thing. I enjoy that. Um, that's all I'm going to say about it. I know some of you guys are just cynical, and you're thinking I'm going to say something. I'm not going to say anything. I thought about using a picture of something else, but I'm not going to do it. I didn't do it. You ever go to a football game, a live football game, and, and usually, and you, high school, is, this is true of high school, but on the, on the grander scale, it's definitely true maybe most of all in college football. If you go to like a Mississippi State game or Ole Miss or Alabama or Auburn or one of these, they really pack out a stadium um, and get there early. I, I'm a guy that likes to get to these games early because I love the atmosphere. Um, I hate that you can't see replays and go to the bathroom in a place that's clean, but you know, whatever. Uh, I do like to see there and be there early and see the stadium begin to fill up. And you can almost feel, especially at night game, you guys know what I'm talking about? There's like a buzz in the air. And as this, this buzz in the air begins to almost reach a fever pitch as people begin to pile into their seats and the people are buzzing. And even like you get like a random kicker that runs out of the tunnel and everybody goes crazy. It's like, what in the world is that? You know what I'm saying? They're all just excited. They're ready to do something. And at the kickoff, it reaches that fever pitch. Because all the fans, we went to the, the SEC championship game in Atlanta a few weeks ago, and <clears throat> there were Georgia fans there, there were Alabama fans there, but guess what they all did at the kickoff? We're crazy. It didn't matter which team that you went for, because everybody builds to this certain point, because the game is about to begin, and as soon as that kicker's foot hits the ball, the sound around you climaxes because the game has begun. I thought about that when I read this passage, because the birth narrative, what we just saw, was the kickoff to God's rescue mission. It was the, the voices of the angels going louder and louder and louder, and then Jesus is born, and then this boom, the game has begun. And so that's what the angels do. I can't imagine a loud, a plethora, thousands perhaps, chanting, glory to God, peace to men, glory to God, peace to men. Because God's plan of rescue has now taken on a human body. And like the game clock winds down in a football game, it eventually expires. The day would soon come that Jesus would defeat his enemies. Death's power would expire as Jesus triumphed over the grave. But it starts with the sign of the opening kickoff. This angelic heralding chorus of Christ's advent. By the way, not to a golden crib, but to a lowly manger feeding trough. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Your translation may say peace, goodwill toward men. Accurately translated, the angels are not declaring peace for all of humanity. They're declaring that peace would be brought to those who accept this Savior, those who receive him as Christ the Lord. God receives glory, the first part of verse 14. Man receives peace. Peace. How? Why? I want to point to a couple other passages that I think really contextualize the word peace. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies of God, enemies, you see that word, right? While we were enemies of God. The reason I point that out is because when you come into this world, you and I are not neutral parties. We enter into the world at hostility with a holy God because we've transgressed his holy character. 
That's why the wages of sin is death, because we have sinned against him. We don't come in neutral. We come in hostile against a holy God, not at peace, but at enmity. Romans 5, 8, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were those enemies, Christ died for us. That's the peace work. That's the peace offering. Romans 5, 1 then says, as a result of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace because that is exactly what he brought to you and to me. And if you're in Christ, if you've received that offering, if you've received the gift of the Savior, then as recipients of his amazing grace, as recipients of his divine peace, we should be extensions of that peace. And this world is far from peaceful, am I right? You just go to YouTube and look at a comment section and see that. But it's worse. There's war. There's devastation. Literally people dropping bombs on people. Fights and brutality. Nasty speech. All it takes is someone cutting you off in traffic and they become your enemy. Something right about that, man. And we can't take after the world when it comes to that. We can't take one from their, car, from their playbook. We've got to take one from the Christ playbook. He ushered in peace. We're to be extensions of that peace. Heralds of it, perhaps, even. Guys, we're messengers. And by the way, we're messengers for what we care about. You're a messenger for what you care about. Goodness, I just told you about underwear. You're a messenger for what you care about. What we believe has made our lives better. It may be food, and you say, no, you got to go to this restaurant and try this dish because I'm telling you, man, change your life. And you're exaggerating, but I know what you mean. You're a messenger because you care about something. Maybe essential oils. It may be exercise. It may be a diet. You say, you know what, I care about this thing, and so I'm going to be a messenger for that thing. Let me tell you about what I do for a living because my job, I'm telling you, man, it's making a difference. Whatever it may be, and that may not be your case, but I'm just saying whatever you care about, typically you're an evangelist for it. In all seriousness, man, we naturally share with others that which has enriched our lives. There's a convicting message here, right? That if you are not sharing this message, do you really care about it? You'd more commonly be an evangelist for a Netflix series you're enjoying than for the bread of life that has changed your heart forever. Do you believe it? Have you been changed by it? If you do, you naturally are a messenger for what you care about. And guys, in a world full of conflict, the message is that we are given peace to be a source of peace to those in our lives. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I love this verse, it's so undervalued and underappreciated in Matthew 5, 9, when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. In our context, in our world, church, can we go be peacemakers? We're to be peace givers because we are receiving, we are recipients of peace. Peace givers because we are peace receivers. You're going to go, go be a vessel, a herald of social peace because God loves you and he wants you to love other people. You're going to be a messenger, a herald of marital peace in your marriage 
Because God has been reconciled to you and your marriage with Jesus. And there's nothing that your spouse that could do that's worse against you than what you have done against a holy God. And he's reconciled himself with you. Peace is what he has with you. What a model for us. We're to be heralds of vocational peace. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you're not working for man. You're working for God. We're to be messengers, heralds of peace, even in times of loss. That's why God's word says, those who have fallen asleep, to speak of those who have died. There's a hopeful message there. And we can be heralds of peace because we have perspective, even in the midst of grieving. We can be heralds of peace in the middle of the storm because we know that at the end of the day, God is in control. In fact, Jesus exercised his control over a literal storm on more than one occasion by saying, hey, waves, be quiet. Isn't that a good metaphor for our lives? That Jesus is in control. We want to be heralds of that. We can be heralds of the peace that we have in the waiting for his return. That when God's word says that he will wipe away every tear, isn't that just a balm for the soul? We can be heralds of that. I say that just to say, we herald current peace of heart because of the future peace of healing. So we sang that song, risen with healing in his wings. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Some of you guys are, are big on the love languages. And maybe read a book about love languages to understand your significant other or friends. I think God's big on love languages too. Sign language was God's love language. He gave a sign to show us that he loved us. Giving was God's love language. That's why in that verse that many of you know, John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he, say it, he gave. He gave. That's right. God showed his love for us. So loved the world. So loved. He showed us that by giving to us. Guys, God's gift to you was motivated by his, motivated by his love for you. God's gift to you was motivated by his love for you. I want you guys to look at an image with me that you've seen me use uh, at least a couple of times over the years, that Mary and Eve image, if you will throw that up there. I love this image because it so meekly yet powerfully communicates the gospel. You have Eve on the left who's ashamed you can just see the shame on her face. She's got bashful, like the cheeks are rosy. She's, she's ashamed. She's wrapped. Look at her legs. She's wrapped as a consequence of her sin. She's even holding that fruit with a, with a piece taken out of it because she's owning her sin, knowing that she is the reason for her shame. And obviously that's a metaphor for us. Then you have Mary across from her. Mary smiling in the midst of such terrible things. She's smiling. Why? Because she's hopeful, because she knows something, a message of hope. The serpent that wrapped Eve, notice where it is in relation to Mary. It's under her foot, in defeat. It's as if Mary grabbed Eve's hand and placed it over the source of that hope, the source of that victory. Guys, that's us, ashamed, still wrapped in some ways as a result of our sin, knowing that we only are to blame for our sin problem, and yet we know the source of our hope. You know, Jesus' genealogy 
In Matthew 1, I've shared this before. Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, you know that boring part that a lot of times you skip over when doing your Bible reading stuff because it's just a bunch of names you can't really pronounce? Genealogy is really important in the book of Matthew because in the book of Matthew, you see that Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family, it includes the liar, the thief, the prostitute, the foreigner, the adulterer, the murderer, the failure, the greedy, and the foolish. You know why? I think it's really powerful because the family that he came from reflects the family that he came for. Because that's us. We don't come from a royal family. We came from a long line of damaged people. And we're the exact same way. And we're a lot like Eve, wrapped by consequences of our own sin, and yet owning it. Because sometimes, shamefully, we love our sin. But we also know the source of our hope. And though not yet being able to lay our eyes on him, we have hope. Because he has advented before. And he will advent again. This Christ, it says he will be for all the people. We herald the good news of great joy. And if he came once, he will come again. Good news. Great joy. And I'll say this. <clears throat> joy may look like smiling is your favorite. It may look like that at times. Joy may look like you glow with an infectious happiness, and some of you do. And man, I'm thankful for that. Praise God for that. But joy may look like only your soul smiles because your face is covered in tears of grief. Joy may look like a prayerful heart because of a hard life. It may look like peace of fullness in God because of the constant feelings of emptiness in this life. And in light of that, I just give you this good news, that happiness is based on happenings, but joy is based on Jesus' advent. He has come once, and he will come again. And for those who are in Christ, and if you are today, this is good news of great joy. Let us be heralds, for this message is for all the people. A Savior has been born, and a Savior will one day return.